alien spacecraft did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. You know flat earthers, I guarantee it. But you don't know who they are because they're afraid of talking about it. This is not a test. This is your emergency broadcast system. Hello and welcome to the 105th Annual Subliminal Deception Podcast, your weekly dose of conspiracy theory bullshit. My name is Cody. I'm joined by my pal Phil. How are you? Doing good, buddy. How about yourself? Not doing too bad. Uh, you know, just another week in paradise, I guess. I'm looking forward to working a lot closer from home, which you have mentioned you had heard. I'll be doing that next Monday, which is fun. It'll be, it was funny, literally this week, like I got up and I had to be to work in about 50 minutes and I'm like, you know what? When I'm at the new spot, I will will not have to leave for about another 45 minutes because <laughs> it's going to be that that's close. A, yeah, that's a nice feeling. That's yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I, I can't uh, I can't wait. But obviously, Phil, we got some big news to talk about, especially in the Twin Cities area. Obviously, the trial of uh, for George Floyd's murder. Um, I can never pronounce a guy's name. Derek Chauvin. 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 Chauvin, something like that, yeah. Uh, he was found guilty on all three counts, which is excellent. The little justice served. You know, in the in the cities, there was a lot of people who, prior to the trial happening, or like they knew the verdict was coming, I believe is on Wednesday. They weren't really sure, you know, what was going to happen because... There could have been more civil unrest. There could have been whatever, especially people who lived in downtown Minneapolis. I did notice a few stores were closed, like just straight up closed that weren't even close to it. So I think uh, everybody, it sounds like everybody, um, at least those who are looking for justice for George Floyd, are satisfied with the verdict. Obviously, they have to try the other three officers. I'm not sure how that's going to go. I don't even know when those trials are, but uh but yeah, Mr. Chauvin is going to be in jail for quite some time. Yeah, well we hope I watch obviously or listen to obviously a lot of small town murder and I didn't realize how much I guess you would call it like the appeals process really matters until I started listening to that show and I'm pretty sure he's going to try out some appeals, probably something along the lines. Usually it's the uh, publicity angle. They go against because there was so much publicity for this. Uh, I guess the next step is his sentencing. I haven't heard of like when any of his trial for like a sentencing is going to be or the hearing. Yeah. yeah, I I knew that, you know, just from like all the true crime and shit that you get convicted, then you get sentenced and then you have your initial appeal and then you have like nine million appeals after the first appeal gets turned down. And it's just like. This will be a ongoing saga for probably at least the next year to two years. So, but I'm pretty certain they're going to nail him pretty hard. I'm pretty confident in that. Like I said, the other officers, I don't really know, but him, they're, they're going to nail. I mean, it's pretty, when you're on video for that long, it's pretty hard to like get out, you know what I mean? Get out of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is. 
I was reading a lot of stuff like people were saying on social media, and I guess there was a lot of worry that he could be basically the sentencing could happen. And then kind of when it all goes to the background of the news articles, they could kind of like let him out, not really let him out, but give him almost no sentence. So one of those deals, I guess uh, people were worried about that. I'm, I, but. You know what? I guess anything's possible. Let's hope that doesn't happen. I, I don't know. It, it's all a waiting game, but at least the convictions are there. That's a good start, right? Yeah. So uh, you want to actually talk about something else, too? Yeah, a little more uh, lighthearted. So you have talked about this how many times on the show, but I finally, this last weekend, took the time to watch Religious Religiousless? How the hell do you pronounce it? Religious. Religious. Wow, what an excellent documentary. Holy fuck, that, <laughs> I was dying laughing. Yeah, it's great. There's uh, My favorite part is the... We've already talked about this a million times, but my favorite part of that movie is the Museum for Intelligent Design, where there's a saddle on the dinosaur's back. Hell yeah. I mean, that's just straight up cool. I wish that actually existed. Uh, the funny thing is that's the exact same guy from that We Believe in Dinosaurs thing or whatever. Yes. Yeah, I told the, you I recognized him from before. So the My two favorite parts were the... Uh, Was it the Reverend wearing wizard boots? No, it, now I remembered. It was the okay. It was the guy who claimed to be a reformed gay man who married oh, yeah. a reformed lesbian woman. And now to him, all gays are sinners and all of this. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? What the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah, that was, uh, I can't remember. He wasn't like one. Of, he wasn't like a Senator. He was like actually working at one of the, uh, pray the gay away camps. Oh. I believe. God. Is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what it was, but I I I know some states have outlawed that. It's pretty disgusting to be honest with you, but um but yeah, that one where this was fresh off 9/11, so it's a little dated, but where he's like asking all the the Islamic people, he's like, "Oh, it's yeah. a religion of peace." It's a real like everyone said and then that brought it back to me where I hear that exact same sentence from uh, people of the Muslim faith all, faith all the time. Uh, obviously, I, you know, I'd say 98% of them it, it are peaceful, obviously. But it's just funny that they all say that. Yeah, well, it's the mass, mass majority of all, like, Muslim people. They're just normal folks who have jobs. You know, they practice whatever religion they want to, which obviously, you know, they live in America. It's their right to. But then they kind of get dragged down by, I guess you would call them like the fundamentalists of their yeah. religion. So. Yeah. Funnel, fundamentalists of any sect of religion, they seem to be the dangerous ones. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's every religion has its <laughs> fundamentalists. I they're mean, the, even. They're the scary ones. Yeah. I mean, like, even Mormons. Mormons are the nicest people you'll ever meet. But if you meet like a fundamentalist, you're just like. God, what the fuck am I like? Why does this dude have like eight wives and 73 ch children, you know, living on some compound out in the desert? You know, uh, if I heard someone like I met someone like, hey, I'm a fundamentalist Christian, I would like honestly just slowly back out and just <laughs> hope to never see that person ever again because it's just, you know, you're in for a fucking roller coaster ride. But uh, hopefully there's no. <laughs> 
fundamentalist like atheist or fundamentalist like Satanist, that would be kind of scary. Oh, that guy who yeah. claims he was a he's a reformed Satanist too. Uh and he's yeah, in that he little the little truck stop church. You know he's full of shit. That dude was so full of shit, it wasn't even funny. There was an episode of Murd Up. I believe it was either Murd Up or Murd Up Radio. I was listening to, and Daniel and Holly were talking about like some of the evangelicals down south. And they were actually talking about, I think it was Daniel was talking about people who claim to be reformed Satanists or former atheists and talk about how they used to, you know, run drugs and pour out women and all this stuff. It was kind of funny. It reminded me of that documentary. Yeah, it's, you know, they're full of fucking bullshit. Normal yeah. people don't, normal people don't do stuff like that. Come on, fuck off. But anyway, Phil, let's, uh, yeah. let's get in this episode here. Let's uh, dive in. What do you got for us today? All right. Since the days of European colonization, the markets of the world, and therefore the people living on it, have both benefited and suffered from the creation of business monopolies, whether created by the state or forged through shrewd business decisions and possibly devious tactics, these megacorporations, after achieving dominance, drowned out their bothersome competition and controlled not only the price of their goods and or services, but also every aspect of the supply chain and what slice of the pie everyone else would receive. Though it started in Europe, the United States has a long history with monopolies, which came to shape business practices during the time of the robber barons. From the mid-19th century, surviving multiple attempts at antitrust legislation, all the way up to today, spanning the time between the domination of the railways to the advent of the information superhighway. Ooh, you know what, Phil? The old monopolies, I'm, I'm assuming you might get into it, but... Are you going to talk about the, I, the best way you can call them is like legal monopolies that still exist in the United States? Yeah, I mean, there are quite a few legal monopolies that exist in the United States. Uh, probably the biggest one, not a lot of people think about it, the Federal Reserve. They have a monopoly on the American money supply. People think that they're a federal federal agency. They're just a bank, basically, made up of private bankers. Well, now that you said that, I hope when you drive to work tomorrow, your head doesn't blow off its shoulders, Phil. Yeah, or my tires <laughs> just incinerate and veer you, off. You know bridge. you can't talk bad about the Fed, man. Come on, you're you're yeah. messing with fire here. <laughs> exactly. Following the end of the feudal system and the rise of the all-powerful nation-state, newly emerging European nations, along with the old guard made up by the royal courts fought wars ever more frequently, and required a large amount of hard currency on hand to pay for their military campaigns. Yeah, those, uh, you know, military campaigns tend to be a little expensive. Um, you know, you can't just use a coupon on them or anything like that. Uh, very expensive. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. And it was coming to a point where in the old, old days during the feudal system, they would have the soldiers basically conscripted from the peasant ranks. Uh, it came really more into fashion with having a professional army whose job it was just to be on call, ready for war at any times. So there was no more going back and planning your crops, harvesting and whatnot. It was all about just military. 
So. so this is kind of like the fantasy a lot of, like, say, the Capital Stormers had, where it's like, we're going to just activate all the followers across the entire nation and just take it over. You know what I'm saying? Like, th- I feel like that's what they wish they had. Uh, or they talk about, like, ooh, we're going to activate this secret army of white supremacists we have or something. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, no, you oh, guys yeah, are I, all I, meth heads. You're not going to do anything. I, I think they refer to themselves as freedom fighters. But, mm. yeah. So the uh, conscript is basically just a draft. So they would go to a village and just kind of this, – these are some countries um, had different practices. But a conscript is basically someone who's just – told that at some point we're going to need you and you're going to come fight in the army for us in our our forces gotcha okay well you know damn well you and i would be the peasants here phil and we'd be we'd be sucked into the emperor's war yeah we would be hosting this podcast around a campfire (laughs) with probably just a couple people less listening okay. right now. If there's a big war, okay, again, and let's say the U.S. starts drafting, can you and I be like, we'll be Robin Williams from Good Morning Vietnam. Like, you can draft us for that. <laughs> for some cool shit? Yeah. Just, we'll just yeah. talk on the radio. Maybe we can be in, like, the uh, USO show and, like, bore the soldiers to death with our podcast. Yeah, that'd be great, actually. <laughs> um, we're probably too old for that shit. They would probably just call me back, tell me I have to pick up a gun while fixing vehicles. There you so, go. I you imagine. Sh- you, shoot the, duty. you just shoot the lug nuts tight and you can call it a day. <laughs> <laughs> just like Peter Griffin. Yeah. <laughs> Along with raising capital for themselves, the aim of these powers was to also bankrupt other nations through unbalanced trade deals by means of increasing exports and limiting imports, thereby keeping their own people employed, also raising money for homegrown industry and collecting as much hard currency as possible, especially gold. Mm. Well, I did just watch the documentary Black Panther and the yes. lost uh, brother or cousin or whatever. He That's kind of what he did. He, they said he goes in and he destabilizes economies and countries. So yes. he, he did that to get a power of Wakanda or whatever. Yeah, this is kind of, um, so back in these, like the beginning, I'm going to mention in a second, the beginning of the mercantile system. Uh, right now, there are agents in governments who go into third world countries and do this like with pinpoint accuracy. Back then, it was more of a carpet, carpet bombing technique. Mm. They were just turning the knobs back then to see what will work. Now, you can have just these specialists go in and just destroy economies without having to uh, do these like big moves. You can just do tiny little moves that create these huge waves for a third world country. Yeah, what are what are what do we call them now? Um, Starbucks, McDonald's, uh, oh. <laughs> Burger King, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Taco Bell. We got rogue agents everywhere around the world destroying <laughs> their economies. Pretty much, yeah. Um, <laughs> some of those fast food places are pretty good overseas, though. They have real food. Like imagine McDonald's, but with like real meat in their burgers. It's pretty weird. It tastes it tastes funny. Actually, so, you've had them. No, we didn't eat any of that over there. I don't think. Oh yeah, yeah. We it was all fish and chips. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's it's weird sitting here in America. We're like, hmm. I wonder what McDonald's is like with real meat. 
That's a scary thought, to be honest with you. Yeah, I vaguely remember what they tasted like. <laughs> I actually, I haven't, I haven't eaten McDonald's since I've been back. I tried to eat it when I first got back here, and I almost threw it up. It was so fucking bad. Mm. But the economic system that was created to achieve this, first coined by Adam Smith in his book, The Wealth of Nations, would become known as mercantilism. Now, mercantilism is an economical system that is defined by the website Britannica as an economic practice by which governments used their economies to augment state power at the expense of other countries. Governments sought to ensure that exports exceeded imports and to accumulate wealth in the form of gold and silver. Now, this was first really enacted by Jean-Baptiste Colbert of France, and this was in 1865. This was after he became comptroller under King Louis XIV. Now, first, he would reduce the debt that the French crown actually owned its civilians. Uh, they basically had made loans to the king. So he would force the financiers to give the profits from those loans back to the state. And that uh, heavily reduced state debt, obviously, if the people who – imagine if the bank loaned you money – and then all of a sudden, all of the profit they made from your loan, they had to give back to you. It would reduce your debt quite a bit. I mean, that'd be nice, but uh, this is America, dude. They want to keep you in debt. Yeah, exactly. It would be the opposite. It would be as if you had a big account with a lot of money and all of a sudden you had to give the interest that you earned back. I can imagine that happening. Oh yeah, well not Far the other way around. Wells Fargo's trying to do it currently unless you open like six fucking checking <laughs> accounts and you make a minimum deposit of like $25 in each of them. Yeah, they hate me because I have free checking and free savings Ooh. accounts. So, I'm surprised they haven't tried to put you over the grills yet. They have actually. Uh I think it was when I bought a car. They were basically trying to get me to sign up for a second checking account just yeah. so that I could have to pay. They were trying to, yeah, they were trying to fuck me over. That was right before that big lawsuit hit Wells Fargo, too. <sighs> God, man, that if you watch the, it's on the dirty money all about them, man. Yes. You should never bank there ever. Fucking horrible. Yeah. Well, I keep my eyes. I like their bank and I also have like a credit card with them, too. So it's it's kind of a it'd be a shit show to get out of it. So I just stick with them. But they haven't fucked me over yet. So yeah, you'd probably need like a small militia with you to like get your money out of there. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. You're not walking out with your cash. No. So next, Colbert would build up the domestic industry inside of France, forcing standardization of products and punishing forgery and low quality products alike. He would encourage foreign manufacturers to relocate to his home country. This would actually increase France's trade imbalance and also add to the tax rolls. Uh, the, basically, the taxes he had also standardized, making them more even and fairer than the old medieval system that had existed before his tenure. Colbert would also increase the importance of shipbuilding in France, and this was in order to move French goods out of the country and keep them off of competitors' vessels. This would also increase the number of not only trade ships, but warships also. He would also increase the arsenals at French ports, and he would start to impress men into the French Mediterranean fleet against their will. And this included criminals, 
Protestants, political protesters, and captured slaves from Canada and Africa. Well, I can tell you who's the most dangerous on there. Them damn Protestants. Protestants. Oh, yeah. Not good fighters, but they're feisty. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Scrappy. You tell them there's Catholics aboard another ship. Oof. You better believe that (laughs) other ship's fucking doomed. But, uh, But, yeah, so this guy, I mean, I don't know for certain if he's a bad guy or not, but it doesn't sound like he's doing too bad of stuff. Well, I mean, obviously... Forcing anyone to fight in your Navy, you know, that's not a nice thing to do. No. Basically, he was, when you're impressed onto a ship, you're basically an indentured servant on that ship. Because it's not like you can go anywhere. You can't just jump overboard. They're the ones keeping you alive, basically. You pretty much work from sunup to sundown. So, I mean... The, the money stuff that he's doing is a good thing. Like France's taxation system really needed to get updated. There was different rules throughout the regions, depending on like what old world, you know, Lord had like what rule some old world Lord had made 400 years in the past. Some people weren't paying taxes at all. Some people were paying too much. Some of the rich people were actually being given money by the French government. So it's one of those deals where he just tried to standardize it across the board. And that's kind of what mercantilism is all about, standardization. See, okay, now there are certain political parties that are like really pushing for standardized tax rates. Is that kind of what he was doing here? Um, We already have pretty standard tax rates, um, except for when it comes to like state taxes between like Um, how different Minnesota state taxes are compared to like Texas, California, Arizona. Well, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm saying like, I guess when I, you mean like, you mean like the rates among people? Yeah. Like every single person on the, in the United States pays, let's say 28%, not a dime more. Okay. Yeah. I believe he actually did try to get it so that everyone was paying the same rate, um, depending on like if they were nobility or peasants. Gotcha. Or in the church. Gotcha. So, By the way, I'm pretty sure that tax rate, especially if you were to do it now in the U.S., is bad for poor people, good for rich people. So let's, <laughs> as yeah. Far, yeah, it's not good. But uh, obviously in the 1600s, times are a little different. You didn't have Jeff Bezos controlling like 50% of the wealth in, in the United States. Yeah, there was basically back then, there was like in every country... There was the king who was probably the richest guy unless there was some merchant who happened to like really kill it for some reason. And eventually he would end up just giving all of his money back anyway. So one of those deals. Yeah. But there were there were a lot of dukes and landowners, a part of the nobility, who also had a lot of not money, but a lot of like land wealth. So they were getting a lot of money for their land. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, honestly... If we put this in today's perspective, are you more afraid of the president of the United States or are you more afraid of Jeff Bezos? I'm more afraid of Jeff Bezos yeah. because the president of the United States has to play by the rules. Yeah. Jeff Bezos writes his own rules. <laughs> exactly. He could probably have you turned into like, I don't know, to fucking jelly or something like, and you'd never be seen again. You'd be put in Welch's grape uh, jelly jars or something. Nobody would ever know you were in there. Like, he could just evaporate your whole body. 
Yeah, he could just dispatch. He could do even worse than that. He could just dispatch his lawyers on you and just make your life a living hell. Oh, maybe I'd just be begging to be turned into jelly at that point. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I just would be kill too. me. <laughs> <laughs> now, however, most importantly for the latter part of this episode, Colbert would try to copy the Dutch model of setting up trading companies. And this was to control the movement of materials out of the French colonies and also sh the shipping of French goods to their markets, uh, really just trying to monopolize French domestic and foreign trade. Now, these companies would be named the French East India Company and the French West India Company, with two later companies being set up to control the Mediterranean trade and the Nordic trade. Uh, really, though, none of these companies would ever reach the heights of the Dutch East India Company. Ooh, okay. I I feel like I've heard of this, the Dutch Ind East India Company. Yes, they were they were very important before Great Britain really took over control of India. They had a big part of the like the tea trade in that in South Asia, like that region of the world. They had really big like. Basically anything, spices, which was the most important product on earth at the time, kind of like the oil of now. Uh, spice, the, the spice trade, they had a big hand in. They had a big hand in uh, basically any really good, trying to think of what it's called, metals, jewels, anything, mm, name it. And precious, the most important things at the time. Precious metals, stuff like that. Yes. Okay. Yep. And they had, they had like a trade network set up. People don't realize it now, but the Dutch were actually very powerful colonial power at the time. They had little stations set up throughout the East Indies. They had basically ports in Taiwan, French Indochina, South Africa, Cape Colony, um, all the way around. So whenever you would travel to the East Indies, basically uh, Asia, East Asia, you have to go around Africa. Well, they had ports set up all along the way, and you had to stop at their ports. So bastards. Um, yeah. Can you imagine cornering the market? Can you imagine being on a ship full of Dutchmen? No, like, I cannot. Imagine you're. I would jump overboard. You're, you're below deck, right? And yes. all you can hear up top is the clogs hitting the wooden deck, and it sounds like someone. There's like ten people tap dancing at the same time. My God, Jesus. How do they waterproof those things, too, on a boat? Yeah, I have no idea. I wonder if they did wear the uh, the clog, the, the, the clogs <laughs> on board their boats. I just assume that they always wear them. So well, even if you went there today, they probably would be wearing them, too. Apparently, they probably created trench foot, too, while they're above there because they never took their damn clogs off. But, uh, okay, is the East Indian Trading Company in... Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean as well. Don't they bring it up in that? Yeah, they do. When uh, okay. when they see Jack Sparrow's uh, tattoo, like, oh, I see you had a run-in with the East India Trading Company. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Where well, I thought I've heard it before. Yeah. Pretty much, I mean, I don't know. Like, obviously, French East India Company was just copying the name of the Dutch East India Company, but... Uh, like everyone had companies, so to speak, out in that region of the world, mostly for tea and spices. So gotcha. Britain later for opium. So <laughs> very important for them. Yeah, absolutely. In 1603, 
The Dutch consolidated many different competing trading companies under one banner, the Verengid Ustinches Company. I said that completely wrong. I'm sorry. Or the VOC, known by most as the Dutch East India Company or the United East India Company, and really just dominated Dutch colonial trade around the world until eventually succumbing to the to the success of competing nations that would copy its own formula. That really coupled also with the fact that the Netherlands really wouldn't see the military success that their competitors would achieve later on in the next century. So you got to have the trading company and you got to have the military forces. And they just yes. kept with the mercantil mercantilism. I hope I said that right. But uh, okay, makes sense. So they... They focus too much on the money and not enough on the force. I mean, they at the time, they really were focusing on their forces. The problem is the Netherlands were kind of fighting a losing battle just because of their positioning between Great Britain, their positioning between the United Kingdom, France, the German states, um, all of the like Eastern European powers at the time to Austria. Uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, all of those, all of these factors, and the fact that everyone hated them, like everyone wanted to take down the Dutch just because of how much money they were bringing into. So, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. As a major part of protecting French interests, Colbert would implement trade tariffs on foreign goods. This would enrage other colonial powers in Europe, causing them to enact tariffs of their own, <laughs> really just against French goods and. This would lead to the implementation of the mercantile system and tariff wars around the world. So was nobody tariffing each other before he did it? I mean, there were, I guess, um, there were restrictions already starting to build up. Um, before Colbert started doing all of this, British had already done, I'm going to talk about it in a second here, but the British had already started with the Navigation Acts before this. So they were already in the process of protecting their own interests before the tariffs went up. But it's one of those deals where Colbert kind of implementing these tariffs really made everyone else strike back with tariffs of their own. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So in the new world, the Navigation Acts enacted to protect British interests would have detrimental effects on the colonies. This is because it wouldn't allow the colonies to produce their own money. It also outlawed the use of Spanish pieces of eight, which at the time were the most really common currency in the new world because of how many Spanish pieces of eight were coming out of the South American silver mines. Also, it would force the Americans to only produce raw materials for the British industry back home, outlawing the production of finished goods of their own on the continent. Now, these factors, along with others resulting from the unfair taxation after the French and Indian War, known as the Seven Years' War in Europe, would lead to the American Revolution, severing the tie between the Colonials and the Brits, kickstarting the American industry, mostly centered at that time around the textile industry from cotton grown in the South. Gotcha. Okay. So this is where the famous saying comes in then, I'm guessing, right, Phil? The famous what? The famous saying. What's that? Ah, uh, what it? 
no taxation, something, something, something. Without representation. Yes, there you go. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So they, yeah, they were taxing the Americans too much, and they they had enough of it, right? Yeah. Well, before the Seven Years' War, really, the American colonies, the the colonialists, were not really seen as British citizens, so they never really got taxed in the way that they were being taxed after the Seven Years' War. And this was because the French and Indian War, part of that larger war, was very costly for the British. Fighting wars off-continent at that time was very expensive. Right, right. Yeah, obviously it uh, took them a little while to get over there. They couldn't just, you know, take a... (laughs) Flap their wings. Yeah, basically. All right, interesting. Yeah. Now, following the age of sails, a new technology, the steam engine, would come into prominence in the industrialized world. This would enrich the men who would find new ways to exploit this very popular technology. First, with the steam engines running machines in factories, which took over for the hydropower that was used up until that point. Eventually, though, steam engines would power steamships and trains. Now, one man born May 27, 1794, Cornelius the Commodore Vanderbilt, (laughs) began his shipping career in 1810 when he borrowed money from his parents to buy a small boat, which he used to ferry passengers between Staten Island and New York City. He would eventually expand his business during the War of 1812, shipping supplies for the United States military in different government posts around New York City. Dude. How much, how 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 many ladies does a man like Cornelius impress on a daily basis? And also, did he make people call him the Commodore? I'm guessing he's the type of person who made people call him the Commodore. Yes. Well, it's too bad that college that is named after him apparently um, is terrible at football. Yes, I will mention that uh, eventually <laughs> in short order. Are they good at basketball, just not football? They are good at neither. I don't think they're very good at... I think they might have gotten into the tournament this year, but no, I don't think they're very good at basketball Mm. either. Okay. Poor Vanderbilt. Yeah. Eventually, Vanderbilt would start his own shipping company, further expanding over the next decade by undercutting his competition. Uh, During this time, also, he took a job as a captain on a steamer for another man who owned his own company. And that's kind of where he really figured out like the shipping industry for himself. At the same time, he would also grow his own business. Gotcha. One one thing that he also did very well was he became an early investor in the railroads. Now, Cornelius would use the same tactics in railroads that had found him success in steamships. This was basically he would consolidate multiple lines and undercut the competition. This was until his company was the first to offer service from New York City to Chicago. And this was basically because he had consolidated so many lines. How I wonder how long it took on that line back then. You, oh, I, I don't know. I mean, had to be a hell of a lot faster than a horse and buggy. Yeah, I know. It's like, can you imagine that, that thought process? Like, okay, honey, we're going to go to Chicago. We're going to have about three kids on the way. Two of them are going <laughs> to die. The last one's going to help us survive till we get to Chicago. No, instead, it's just like, okay, let's get on the train. 
you know, it, it, it's great. It's great for that. I mean, I have a feeling Cornelius has a few skeletons in his closet here we're about to find out about. But uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's pretty great. Yeah, I mean, he did. He was kind of a man of his time, really. He had some uh, some of the articles that I read said that he had some interesting views on women. Basically, he left when he died. Eventually, he left all of his money to his male children and he had many daughters and a surviving wife but he left them almost nothing so yeah i mean for 1800s that's like it's really sad obviously but uh it's kind of i don't know it was a backwards world right yeah pretty much he wanted his daughters just to be married off to have them being taken care of so he didn't want to uh, leave them any money of their own i guess what so. i wanted to mention that is interesting and i just for some reason have always been kind of fascinated by like the 1800s and and early 1900s is every rich scam artist that i've read about or like con man or whatever you want to call it they always are involved with you know like the transportation or shipping business do you ever notice that especially during this time period like they get their hands in it and whether they're actually doing it, you know, have a good product or not, they get really rich off of it. Yes. And the mafia, too. Yeah. They also get involved with shipping and like unions like the Teamsters. Yeah. They always get involved in a lot of basically anyone who's moving things around. Yeah. Because when you get involved with a company that moves things around, you can start moving illegal stuff around, too. Right. So, right. It's very true. Yeah. So Cornelius Vanderbilt would eventually amass a wealth of over $100 million in, you know, the United States dollar at the time. In today's dollars, though, that's about $225 billion. What could you, like, seriously, during his time, like, what can you even buy with that much money? Like, you can buy every horse, like, in the United <laughs> States? Like, what the fuck are you going to do with all that? hundred million dollars might buy you every horse in the United States at that time. Fuck. It's, I mean, for the time, it's an unimaginable amount of money. Well, fuck, it, he could have probably bought Arizona at that time for that. Well, I mean, 1933, <laughs> in 1890 or 1880 something. Oh, they're not a state the, yet, I suppose, huh? Alaska was bought for, God, I can't remember how much, but not that much money. The entire state of Alaska was bought for... Less than, I think, maybe 10 or $15 million. So, I mean, really back then, it could get you quite a bit. $100 million. That's quite a bit of money. Yeah. So. Well, can you imagine if we had some of the rich people we have today and that was available for purchase? I wouldn't want them to have that all that land just for themselves to do whatever they want. Yeah. Well, considering how much we know of like the the value of like how much oil it has how much precious metal alaska has uh the fact that the ice cap is receding and there's going to be shipping lines above alaska and also oil opportunities there i think it was worth in the like the quadrillions of dollars yeah i would imagine alaska. now it is yeah i would imagine it is um yeah god i guess it's it, it, it's a good thing that the united states owns it and not, God, I couldn't imagine if, like, fucking the Walton family bought it or something. Oh, my God. 
Fucking yeah, a. I don't think they could afford it, but it was owned by Russia before America bought it. So it would have been the Ruskies owning it before us. Just think if, if they found out they could grow like endless amounts of potatoes there for their vodka, they would have never sold that. Oh, yeah, definitely. So some of the biggest legacies left behind by Cornelius Vanderbilt uh, would include the building of what would become Grand Central Station in New York City. He also donated $1 million to Central University in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, as you mentioned before, this would eventually become Vanderbilt University, known for the Vanderbilt Commodores football team, which have never won an SEC championship (laughs) since joining the conference in 1933. They're in the SEC, huh? Yes, they are in the SEC. Yikes. They must just be get whooped up by all the other teams but uh uh, yes that is the reason why they're still in the sec is because (laughs) they're basically just the fucking you know punching bag for all of the better teams you know what we we make fun of the sports there but i'm assuming that like the actual education (laughs) that you know kids generally go to school for is excellent there Oh, yeah, no, I'm sure it's a great school, mm-hmm. but it's just their football team sucks, and that's, you know, it's <laughs> all I can really care about. The uh, Actually, James Franklin, the head coach of Penn State, came out of Vanderbilt University. So Okay, interesting. He, uh, he did well enough for himself there to get a better job at Penn State, so. Excellent. Yeah, another man who amassed a massive fortune through innovation and undercutting of the competition was John D. Rockefeller. Mm, The original reptilian. Yes, of course. Original time-traveling Nibiru reptilian. (laughs) Rockefeller was born in 1839, the second child of six, to a father who worked as a traveling snake oil salesman. He eventually would move his large family many times until settling in Strongsville, Ohio. This was just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. Wow, okay, Strongsville. Uh huh. Interesting. I wonder if there's actually anybody strong in that entire town. Yeah, I'm guessing that old J.D. Rockefeller was probably the last famous person to come out of Strongsville. (laughs) But I'm also imagining that Cleveland, Ohio was a much nicer city back then than it is now. I'm guessing his oil companies probably caused most of the pollution in that river. Yeah, I would would say you're probably onto something there. Yeah, definitely. Early on in his adulthood, J.D. Rockefeller realized the potential of extracting oil and would build an oil refinery just outside of Cleveland. This would eventually become the largest oil refinery in the region. Wow, okay. You know what? Um... The other assholes, the Koch brothers, uh, they own the oil refinery that is, I don't know, 20 miles south of here. And that thing fucking stinks. Yeah, definitely. It is. You see it right when you come from the south driving into the cities. You definitely see it because it is the size of like Decora. It's so big. Yeah, absolutely. Decora is a town in Iowa that's very (laughs) Not very large, it's but fu- quite. It is funny, though. If if someone asks where you're from and you're like, Iowa, oh, we're in Iowa, I instantly just say Decor because usually they know that town. They might know Decor. If they don't know Decor, I say Cedar Falls. Mm, there you go. They'll know Cedar Falls usually. If not, I'll just say Iowa and then <laughs> shut up. So seeing the flaws in the kerosene market, 
Rockefeller would innovate the oil industry. And he did this by standardizing his kerosene product, removing the flaws that plagued other kerosene oils, making them really just volatile and unsafe to use. By creating standard oil, he had made a promise that this would be the safest lamp oil on the market. Ooh, I don't know if I trust him, but ooh, here's the other thing. So is he he himself actually the person doing all this stuff, or is it his company that's doing this stuff? Kind of from what I learned in college, I took a class on uh, kind of like business history in America. Basically, what he did was he's not the one who figured out the science behind all of this. He's just kind of like the big picture guy. Okay. Just basically like expanding and undercutting competition, getting sweetheart deals. That was his that was his bag. Okay. really like the science behind everything was other people. Gotcha. Okay, that's kind of what I figured, but I just want to double check. Yeah, he was he was really good at buying up oil companies, but not really good at extracting oil gotcha but he knew enough obviously to you know to do it so right rockefeller would begin aggressively acquiring his local competitors gobbling up all of the refineries in cleveland then further expanding into other cities in the area also negotiating with railroad companies for cheaper and cheaper rates on the shipping of his barrels of oil and kerosene eventually he actually began buying up and building oil pipelines. And this was to cut out the railroads, which he had enriched with his shipping. Basically, he had shipped so much oil that a lot of these railroads now only shipped oil and his kerosene because they were making so much money on it. Then he built all these oil pipelines and completely cut them out of his process. Standard Oil would be formed into a trust in 1891. And this was with Rockefeller at the head of the table in front of eight other trustees. Uh, This really would become the first ever trust in the United States. By 1882, Standard Oil would completely control the oil market, forming one of the largest non-government-backed monopolies in history. Oh, yeah, that's... I mean, we hear this now, like, honestly, everything you're saying here is literally what giant corporations do. Like his tactics of just like cutting everybody but themselves out. Um, But yeah, I imagine this, obviously this is like terrifying to think about. If you heard a company doing this right now, you know what I mean? You're like, you're at the mercy of them. I mean, we are kind of living in that time. It's happening with, I'm going to mention it in later on in the episode, obviously, but have to mention Jeff Bezos yep. with Amazon. Yep. I mean, basically what he's doing with, you know, integrating every process of like, imagine a small website that sells books. What was it? 25, 26 years ago, whatever all of a sudden becomes this giant that has its own shipping trucks, that has its own warehouses, that sells everything on earth, basically single-handedly shutting down these mega corporations that owned all of the the retail stores. He's he's basically killing off retail stores left and right, just himself. Yeah, I mean... I I do kind of like weirdly feel trapped into using Amazon. Yeah. Um uh it kind of sucks, but it's like 
I don't know. It, it does kind of feel like you're kind of forced to use it a little bit. It's it feels kind of funny to say, but I kind of feel like a like a good feeling when I go to actually like go into a store like a Target or a Best yeah. Buy, one of those yeah. stores. Even though 15 years ago, I would have felt good about going into a mom and pop instead of going to a Target or a Best Buy. So it's kind of I odd. know, I know. I we I wish we could support mom and pops more. Honestly, yeah, it's. I mean, you got to do it on the internet though. Because it's hard to find them, you know. A lot of them have actually shut their brick and mortars down and are like solely on the internet. But a lot of them also kind of, you know, caved and now they're selling on Amazon or Etsy, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, I know. Now, getting kind of into that, really, with the advent of new technologies, centralization by the innovation of one producer is bound to occur. After the initial race to enter the industry concludes, the best among them of the competitors really just kind of takes control every single time. And this is until other companies can form that copy the perfected model that has become the standard, eventually innovating enough to take over that model and defeat the champion. Now with Vanderbilt, it was the railroad, J.D. Rockefeller, oil. There have been other new technologies that would also be overtaken by a single competitor. This example I'm going to give right now is Andrew Carnegie. Mm. Some people call him Carnegie, but I don't call him that because it sounds weird. <laughs> with, his <implita> with his implementation of innovative methods to the production of steel, his company, Carnegie Steel, based in the wretched city of Pittsburgh Ooh. with all of its whores and drug dealers would eventually become <laughs> the largest and most powerful steel manufacturing company in the world. This was until he sold his business to another Robin Baron of the time, JP Morgan and Carnegie after selling to JP Morgan and Charles Schwab would make himself the richest man in the world after this sale. Gotcha. Now Carnegie is the one who had Carnegie bucks Right, for his employees? There were, yeah. So he was one of them. There were quite a few industrialists who would make their own money. Uh, basically, just another thing, kind of like, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Amazon did this with their employees. Yeah. Instead of paying their employees money, they gave them Amazon gift cards. Basically the same thing. Uh, I Honestly, it's probably going to happen. Yeah. And... Uh, J.P. Morgan, Charles Schwab, we hear those names now when we think businesses. It's weird to think that back then they were real people who were really, you know, just tossing around millions of dollars, like making shit happen. So they, vo they both actually led very interesting lives themselves. Mm. So J.P. Morgan, whose innovation and dominance came from his work in the financial sector, turned Carnegie Steel into U.S. Steel, which after its formation along with the merger of Carnegie Steel's former competing businesses, which was Federal Steel. U.S. Steel became the largest steel company in the world. Now, J.P. Morgan would also go on to create General Electric, and this was after he fucked over both Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla. He fucked over Edison for control of Edison Electric, and Tesla he fucked over by stealing his patents yeah, via Westinghouse. Yeah, this sounds like J.P. Morgan, all right. Yeah, biggest asshole in history, probably. <laughs> Everybody hates him. <laughs> Especially people who love Nikola Tesla hate J.P. Morgan. 
Yeah, I know. Here's you mentioned like Charles Schwab and J.P. Morgan now are like um, stock industry company. standards. Well, they're in the name. Are they, I thought they were like stock buying companies now. They um they're like financial institutions. So okay. like J.P. Morgan or is it yeah J.P. Morgan Chase? That's like one of the biggest. They merged and became one of the biggest banks in the world. Um, Charles Schwab. Uh, was a like an investing type bank. I don't gotcha. know if they're still around though. I'm not sure if they survived 2008. Gotcha. So. Okay. Now, following the age of the robber barons, the federal government would intervene in an effort to break up the trusts and end the monopolies that were seen as giant faceless behemoths who cornered the market, cutting profits of supporting industry and also manipulating the prices of their products hammering what little competition remained. The government was, in effect, successful in breaking up the trusts. However, these trusts and monopolies would continue on through the next century. So they broke them up, but they weren't illegal yet? Well, here's kind of the weird thing, and it's kind of hard to describe. Some monopolies are seen as evil and dangerous, and some monopolies are seen as good. Uh, so a couple that I'm going to mention here. One other thing that J.P. Morgan started or at least bought up was International Harvester. International Harvester, unlike Standard Oil, was seen as a good monopoly. Standard Oil was seen as a bad monopoly compared to International Harvester. Gotcha. AT&T was also seen as a good monopoly for a while. <laughs> now they're just a shitty cell phone service. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. They seem to have come back from the dead somehow, too. So, <laughs> Now, during the 20th century, new monopolies would form. This would include General Electric's control of the incandescent light bulb patents, which was very important at the advent of uh, lighting America and the rest of the world. AT&T would have a monopoly over the telecommunications services. Uh, probably most importantly in our lives, though, computers. First, with the IBM company, uh, this was just because of their punch card tabulating computers. They had a monopoly over those. Next up would be Bill Gates and Microsoft. And this was when the personal computer became accessible to the general public. Yeah, he, he, okay. Now I know a little bit more about this one. Yeah. Um, m mostly because of when I worked at Best Buy. This is the last monopoly that I know of that got in big trouble. Um, and it wasn't the personal computer. It was that he was putting Microsoft Word on every single computer that was sold or Microsoft Works or whatever they called it at the time. Thus, no other word processing program could exist because no one would buy it because it was already preloaded on the computer. That's why now when you want Microsoft Office or whatever, it's like 400 fucking dollars because they cannot yeah. just put it on the computer itself anymore. There is a very long tradition of these monopolies. When the government interferes, they actually end up helping the the bad guy companies or the trusts. So Microsoft did end up, I believe they, they ended up getting split up. But just like Standard Oil, when Standard Oil split up, they actually made more money after being split up than they did when they were combined. Right. And it also did help Microsoft out because now they can charge so much for their individual products, which yeah. you pretty much might as well buy because it's the only, you know, 
it's the best thing out there. Some people like other word processors, but honestly, I just use Word. Honestly, for this show, uh, I use generic fucking homemade ones that are available for free on the internet. Uh, the, yeah. the spell check is terrible, but uh, but yeah, the the thing, the other. <laughs> Believe me, I know the the um uh the modern monopolies that I I know they're technically not, but let's say where I live right now, you let's say you wanted to have a fully solar house right in the Twin Cities area. I know this for yes. a fact. Number one, Excel Energy controls every single power line in the area. So if you wanted to go completely solar. You're not even allowed to. You have to sell the energy to Excel Energy and run off of their power. Um, that's probably like a state law thing, I'm assuming. But yeah, you can you can't use any other power other than Excel Energy. Um, and in Xfinity or Comcast is kind of like you're kind of trapped into that around here as well. So yep. Those are I'm actually going to get into that. Oh, like, okay. Let's in do like it. two paragraphs. But yeah, the, the thing you said about um, Excel Energy, basically having like a government mandated like control over a certain region is exactly what I'm going to get into. So okay. that's like a perfect, Let's perfect do it. segue there. Let's hear it. As of late, globalization and the creation of mega corporations has changed the way that business works in the world as many, if not all industries have been overtaken by just a few megacorps that have either run out or bought up all of the smaller competitors around them, and in some cases colluded with other megacorporations to manipulate prices and the availability of products. This is really just to increase profits and stymie costly innovation. Now, one example of this is with internet service providers mm. and cable. So I figured you were going to say this is like Walmart versus shopco and kmart phil well i'm gonna get into that a tiny bit later but yeah this right now we're gonna talk about okay kind of what you were just talking about mm. with these mega corporations mm -hmm. like divvying up the country and mm -hmm. controlling certain areas mm. so I, I was joking about the kmart shopco those stories were oh. dumps dude honestly yeah. like those stores probably would have been fine but for some have you ever noticed and this is just maybe this is just in america but there's like certain big chain stores where it's almost like, I don't know if the original owner leaves, leaves or something, I don't know, but it, then it's just like the management just across the country just rots the stores to the core and they're just like dirty, grimy, untaken care of and then they just like slowly whittle away. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah, you can definitely tell a few years in advance of like a store, like franchise or an entire like seems like the entire brand when it's going downhill you just start noticing it's the floors is the first thing you start noticing that like the floors are sticky or they're always dirty and then there's like empty shelves everywhere it starts to look like a massive bodega hmm. so, well i mean the the latest one i think that's kind of going here is uh burger king oh yeah i that have shit. heard dude that, that place burger has been king... fucking dirty for years now yeah, I have heard that Burger Kings are really, really going downhill. I used to like to get their like double bacon cheeseburger and French fries uh, when I used to eat fast food. But the ones around here, I will not like step into. I, yeah, hate, I can't stand it. They're just so dirty and just uninviting and just, uh, I don't know. It's whatever. Yep. Anyway, continue on. 
So when it comes to internet service availability, most customers in the United States only have maybe one option, two if they're lucky, and most likely zero if they live on a farm in Iowa. <laughs> well, you know what my internet my parents have? Uh, the fucking farm <laughs> DSL internet. Silo pretty, internet? Yeah, basically. <laughs> I mean, it works, but it's three megabytes a second. Pretty fucking terrible. Yeah, exactly. So I kind of actually did look up last night and the night before a little bit when I was doing research on this. And it is kind of funny when you see what internet companies are in certain zip codes and what download speeds they have in, say, my zip code right now in Mesa compared to Lime Springs, Iowa. Mm. So like what you can get in Lime Springs compared to Mesa. So Probably a lot different. Yeah. Also, they did have some really cool maps that I'm going to post on Instagram with basically how the internet companies are broken down across the United States and really like what states some of these companies are biggest in and like what part they carved out for themselves so that they wouldn't be competing with the other big boys in the industry. <sighs> a lack of competition for customers will eventually mean a higher price with no recourse in actually switching to a new service provider for the customers. Uh, really, there's just zero motivation for providers to innovate their technology or increase the speeds at all. And this is really just due to the fact that they don't have to worry about the competition coming into town and eating their lunch yeah. when they've already made the sweetheart underhanded deal to basically screw over the customers. Yeah, it. this is kind of where like I think streaming applications is kind of like a double-edged sword because mm. it's good because it's destroying cable, right? But it's yes. bad because you are required to have internet to enjoy it, which is feeding into them as well. So, and cell phones obviously killed like the home phone market, which is big for them. Um, yep. But uh, but yeah, it's dude Comcast. They don't get me wrong; they have good internet. We're literally recording this podcast off of their internet, but. The horse shit about putting caps on data every month and like all of that, charging you more if you go over. It's just like that shit never existed before. And like there's no need for it outside of them making more money. Yeah, the crazy thing is so cell phones killed the home phone. However, internet, like home internet, is mostly sent on the cable lines. You hook it up into your cable, you know, cable box on your wall. So really, broadband internet isn't killing the cable companies because the cable companies are the ones making money off of the internet. Have you noticed, um, I, I don't know how long it was for you guys, but we were always told that like, oh, the, uh, what's that super fast internet line? Fiber? Uh, fiber, yeah, thank you. Have you ever noticed like that whole push for fiber just kind of died? It just hasn't happened, even though they could have done it a long time ago, but they just haven't done it at all. Yeah, I well, like, okay. I I will push back a little on that because I've heard you, you have to dig up a lot of shit to get it in people's houses, but uh, you know what I mean. Like you have to bury it all. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that was the big problem. But I had heard that by like 2020, like they were gonna have every major city wired up with fiber. I had heard that like by now we should all have it living in the big cities, mm. but it seems like you really can't find it anywhere unless you live in like a super downtown area where you they, you know, well, I, I, it. I heard 
the they were starting it on the East Coast, so I don't know. But then again, the people who are starting it was another probably evil company by the name of Google. So <laughs> I no, don't know. Yeah. You can't get away from these motherfuckers. Well, pretty soon we'll all have free, slow-ass internet from old Tesla, that company, up in no, the satellites. There you go. So, there you go. From the man whose name I can never remember, so I just stopped saying his Elon name. Musk. Elon Musk, that's his name. We got it the first time there. So another means that ISPs or internet service providers had attempted to manipulate the market was by ending net neutrality, which meant that they would be offering sweetheart rates and speeds to their partner services. Just like you mentioned before, like the audio and the video streaming services, video calling and social media services, while simultaneously gouging the competitors or the independent sites only offering them the slowest speeds at the highest rates. Yep. Um, as much shit as we talk about Barry Satiro, he was very anti-net neutrality, um, as far as I remember. Well, no, he was pro... Okay, so... Okay, I always get this confused. Everyone wanted net neutrality. So he was, he was actually pro... In 2015, he passed net neutrality. Right. Okay, that's... Net neutrality is the one you want, right? Yeah, that's the one that okay. keeps everything fair. Yeah. So that okay. you're not getting paid more to go on yeah. like Instagram compared to Facebook because your company has a deal with Facebook. Yes, 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 yeah. yes, yes. Okay, yes, I have that. What I'm saying, overall, Obama, he wanted everybody to have fair internet uh, and not fucking horseshit that uh, I can see the man you're about to talk about once. Yeah, so... Under the regulations of net neutralities, internet service providers were not able to do something called blocking. Now, this was when internet service providers could not discriminate against any lawful content by blocking website or apps. Throttling, which meant that they were not able to slow the transmission of data because of the nature of the content, as long as it was legal. I can, and also, I can promise you, ISPs 1 million percent throttle internet. Um, it's just, it's impossible to prove that they're doing it. You'll, I don't know if you've ever noticed, like you're just sitting there and all of a sudden like your internet like crashes or like slows way down for no reason at all. And then it'll pick back up. Dude, they totally do that shit. Even though, yes, it is illegal. Yep. Yeah. When I'm playing rocket league, all of the sudden, like I don't have anything else, uh, except for my phone sucking up the Wi-Fi, and all of the sudden my internet just slows to a fucking like a stall and my uh rocket league game is just like crashing basically yeah yeah i'm i'm sorry i don't believe they listen to that at all because you can't prove they're doing it they do it so fast that you can't prove they're doing it yeah they claim that they're not doing it but it does seem like they are Mm. doing it there's also a problem too with you got to realize at the time like what time you're using the internet's important because if you're using it at five o'clock in the morning and there's no one else on and it's fast. Well, there's, it's fast for a reason. But if you're using it right after work, then internet's going to be a little bit slower just because everyone's online. So. Right, right. Also, another thing, paid prioritization. And this is where service providers could not create an internet fast lane for companies and consumers who paid the like the most amount of money and also making a slow lane for the rest of us. Yeah, this is probably the biggest one here. Um, that I'm pretty sure they really want to do. 
Yeah, definitely. So on December 14, 2017, the FCC voted to reverse internet regulation under Title II of the Communications Act of 1932. Now, this vote was to end net neutrality, with net neutrality officially ending in June of 2018. This was led by Commissioner of the FCC, Ajit Pai, after being elevated to commissioner by then-President Trump. He had claimed that the regulations against the internet service providers were actually slowing innovation and really not allowing them to offer up creative ways to service their customers. So here are some really just what many people were worried about with the end of net neutrality was that internet service providers would just kind of carve up the internet into bundles. This is much like what cable TV does for its customers. Uh, basically, for some of the sites that you want, you would have to pay a premium just to visit them on a regular basis. And these are things like, say, your company, say you're a big fan of using uh, Spotify and Netflix, and the company just decides to put Spotify and Netflix in different bundles, which would mean that you would have to pay for two different bundles just to get Spotify and Netflix. So Yeah, that's horseshit. And this uh, Ajit Pa. Pi guy is man. You can find so many memes about him on the internet because he's such an asshole. Yes, he has the largest teeth on a human mm. being I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it's quite quite uh, striking, actually. I love the one meme where it's like him with like jizz all over his face, and then there's like dicks, but they're all like the cable companies and internet companies. Uh, yes, <laughs> it's pretty great. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's just, it's crazy because I don't even really remembering it happening. There was so much other shit in the news going on at the time. Oh, yeah. They slid it under. Dude, they slid this shit under the doorstep. Like, nobody even knew it happened. It was too late. Yeah. Hopefully, Biden reverses it. But Biden's probably being paid by the big companies, too. So, mm. he's probably just going to just leave it alone, I imagine. Our boy Barry's going to whisper in his ear. Give him, give him the old, the old Barry uh, mind manipulation. Mm -hmm. He's yeah. going to do it. Now, internet service providers are not the only problem. There are a few mega corporations that control most, if not all, of the pie when it concerns consumer products like toiletries, soft drinks, snack foods, pharmaceuticals, processed foods, among many, many other goods and services. They're really just controlled by a small number of large parent organizations, some of which own seemingly competing products. Uh, the problem really is that the average consumer doesn't even realize that they're buying into these products, even if they might have, you know, misgivings against, pro, uh, say, they really don't want to support Coca-Cola right now. But Coca-Cola produces one of the drinks that they really like without knowing it. Yeah, they're really in this country. There's an illusion of choice when it comes to what we buy. Yeah, yeah, and you, uh, you kind of showed me the little graph here. It's good to see Wrigley still doing something, by the way. Um, but yeah, yep. it's <laughs> what do you got? Nestle, Wonka, PepsiCo, Quaker, uh, General Mills, Coke, uh, the tampon company. I can't read what that one says. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> so yeah, there. there's there's some major companies that own. Basically, what we're looking at is if you Google the illusion of choice on 
uh, their Google images, you'll find large pictures with all of the comp- major mega corporations in the middle and just exactly what products that they own. Mm. Uh, if you look at PepsiCo, PepsiCo owns just a ton of random brands that you don't even really think of that are owned by Pepsi. Yeah. Uh, Pepsi actually acquired Quaker, which they owned a ton of stuff in the past, but now Pepsi actually bought them up. The weird thing is everyone thinks that Coca-Cola, because it's a more like the the brand of soda, Coca-Cola, is more popular than Pepsi. So you would think Coca-Cola makes more money than Pepsi. In reality, PepsiCo makes, I believe it's almost double what Coca-Cola makes. And that was as of the gra- the figure that I saw was 2017. Wow. Holy so. shit. I mean, like Mars and Nestle, those ones I, I feel like a lot of people know about, um, yes. you know, because it's just candy or whatever uh wonka though i didn't know they owned them uh i'll never be able to eat nerds and not look at them you know i'll be looking at them differently yeah well i mean m&ms if you really like if you look over at the candy bar section they own m&ms milky ways like snickers twix basically three musketeers there's just a shit ton of candy that i didn't even realize you know the mars company owned Mm-hmm. Uh, Nestle is a big one, but with water. Like when it comes to drinks, Nestle is a huge buyer of water across the country and around the world, really. Uh, it's hard to get away from Nestle, though, because they own so many little, like, sub brands of water. You really can't get away from them. <laughs> Here's the other thing. From what I, mo- I mean, I'm sure it's not all of them, but. It seems like a lot of these companies, the big parent ones, will buy a little one that has like a quality product, and then they'll just corrupt and like just destroy it into like the cheapest form possible to make them the most amount of money. Yes. Yeah, I imagine, um, well, Wrigley, when we were kids, that was pretty much the gum that everyone ate, and now you really don't see... They have expanded it into like Orbit and a few other brands on there. But I haven't ever like really seen anyone chewing like a stick of Wrigley gum in forever. Well, when all the old people die, nobody's going to be chewing that shit. Yeah. I do see some people with uh, Orbit, like those little packs of gum still, which they technically do own. I, so. I am a huge sellout to Trident gums, uh, different Trident gums. That's kind of my jam. Oh, yeah. What you get from the dentist. Yeah. I mean, yeah. honestly, I like it. It's good gum. I'm not going to. It's the gum I like. And you get the little cans of the gum, the little tablets. I like those. Those are very good. Yeah. I mean, this is just this is just one instance. If you look at the pharmaceutical graphs, the same exact ones for the pharmaceutical companies, it's crazy how many drugs are just run by just a couple of different pharmaceutical companies. Uh, same with the automotive industry. Yes. The automotive industry is a little bit more well-known just because cars are so popular. Right. Uh, Everyone knows Chevy is owned by GM. You know, everyone knows kind of like what little brand. Well, actually, General Motors used to have a ton of little brands before the 2008 crash. They got rid of a lot of their brands. Right. Yeah. I mean, really kind of how the mega corporations are now. It's more about not necessarily a monopoly. But there's a seem uh, comes with it comes along with like the illusion of choice. It seems like we have all of these, you know, 
all like if you go into a grocery store and you see like the say it's the the cereal aisle you think that you have just hundreds of choices hundreds of things to choose from really you only have like maybe three or four different companies to choose from yeah you know in total yeah yeah that's the sad truth isn't it it's the same with the soda aisle too uh, from the looks of it there's a shit ton of soda up there, but really there's only maybe five or six actual companies yeah. running the whole show. Yeah. Yeah. That's sad. Yeah. And really interesting too. If you, there's a documentary I watched called the soda wars and it has to do with the placing that you'll see Coca-Cola and Pepsi. If you really pay attention in a grocery store or a gas station of where Pepsi is compared to Coca-Cola, you'll see that they kind of mirror each other with the most important products for each being at eye level, but in their own little sections. It's kind of interesting to look at how that actually works huh, when you, you kind of like know how they break it down. And where did you see this? I saw it on the internet. I'm not sure if it's called the Soda mm, Wars, but okay. it was a documentary about uh, basically like Pepsi and Coca-Cola, how they're buying up all of these little products and how they kind of decide like what, like in what region of the country so if you go to the southeast, you're going to see a lot more Coca-Cola like in the stores. You when I went to Arkansas, or no, Shreveport, Mississippi. When I went to Mississippi, I barely saw any Pepsi products in a gas station. I would only see Coca-Cola basically like all over the place. It's kind of weird. Yeah, I suppose that's why the southerners refer to every single uh drink as Coke. Coke. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of weird. <laughs> But, I mean, that's kind of basically it. I just kind of wanted to do a little bit different one. Uh, kind of, we were talking about products last two weeks. So, kind of talk about business, you know, big business, really. Yeah. What did you think about, uh, I don't know, I guess you already had some ideas about, you know, internet service providers and electric companies and that sort. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of crazy to think about. It's kind of scary to think, even though these things should be illegal, there's a lot of loopholes, and uh, I guess maybe we're a bit too comfortable with that in the United States, or at least people are, they know they exist, but they feel helpless to be able to do anything against it because uh, taking down a multi-million dollar corporation is like impossible. Um, I think you'd have better yeah. luck building a time machine or something, um, but yeah, it's uh, it's kind of scary. Maybe, you know, uh, maybe one day they'll all fall or some other thing will be figured out. But uh, unfortunately for now, it's just what we have to live with. Yeah. One thing that I wanted to mention really quick, I didn't want to actually make this like a section inside of the episode, but really something like a new technology that's emerging right now is cryptocurrency. Like it's really becoming popular and the biggest ones have shot up. Uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, they've shot up in value over the past few months, like really, really huge. Uh, right now, there's a ton of cryptocurrencies, but I can see one cryptocurrency maybe like taking over control of the whole game and kind of becoming like the main one. Like I can only really see one cryptocurrency, though, becoming like a real currency in the actual like money market. So yeah, the, it's kind of one thing to look out for, I suppose. The, the crazy thing uh, real quick here about Bitcoin that I heard is I, I can't fathom for the life of me why anybody gave any value to it because <laughs> my understanding yeah. of it is just like some madman 
buried all these algorithms on the internet and like people mine them up in their bitcoins and then other people buy i it's just really weird that people find them so valuable um but yes if you they're especially good for buying illegal things and not having them be traced back to you so they're excellent for that as well um so it's i mean it's just if you really look into it like the science behind it it's crazy to think that anyone puts any value in dollar bills if you really look into it it's they're basically worthless they're only it's a fiat currency which means that it's only worth anything because we have faith in it and that's the exact same thing like with cryptocurrency cryptocurrency is only valuable because you have faith in it's being worth something and how you how you make it like be worth something you buy it with a legitimate currency that's how you legitimize fiat currencies is by buying it with another fiat currency the cycle. Gotcha. Okay. I guess, yeah, that makes sense. Well, yeah. Phil, uh, before we close out here, you wanted to start a new little segment. So why don't you uh, you tell us about that? Yeah, I wanted to get something going. Uh, kind of wanted to call it something, I don't know, maybe like five-star mean reviews or something like that. Maybe try to get our reviews up a little bit. But there was actually a review from a I'm not sure if it was a lady or a gentleman in Australia, a Kiwi, you could say, from a Kiwi in Australia. <laughs> uh, this was on Chartable that I found. Uh, it, it is a one-star review, but I do want to say, if you guys want to put like funny, mean reviews up and then kind of like get on Instagram and tell me that you threw something up, I'm only going to read them if it's a five-star from now on. So after this one-star, I'm only going to read five stars. And it's got to be so. funny. And it's got to be funny. It can't. Yeah, it, it better be funny. This one is pretty fucking funny, though. So it is titled Problematic. No from me. The first episode I tried out was the Russian apartment bombings, and I made it six minutes in. In the first six minutes, I got treated to the following. One of the hosts said that he had spent time talking to a woman in a bar, and it was a waste of time because she was married, despite her not indicating she was single. He talked about disregarding COVID distancing for a woman's attention. They referred to carnies as in people who worked at carnivals (laughs) and made me turn it off. They were very casually jumped between the people in the story being Chinese and Japanese in a story based in China. Do you not listen to yourselves when you edit this? And that was from KL Scott via Apple Podcasts out of Australia. Okay. um, Well, Okay, I can see some of the points there, but number one, what do you call people who work at a carnival? Is it not carny? Do they have? I a, thought it's carnies. Is, it, is there like a more PC name for them now? I don't. Is it carnival worker? Is that what we're supposed to call them? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe anyone living in Australia, what do you guys call carnival workers? Well, just, he, you know, here's, email us that. Here's the thing. We should probably be a little self-aware here because of the fact that where we grew up, the the carnival people came in. Uh, I, I, don't, I, I feel like they were only there to like tra- traffic drugs uh, from the looks of them. <laughs> And because of that, all of our parents and stuff call them carnies because you don't want to be around them alone because they're very scary people. I'm sure there's probably plenty of uh, friendly carnival workers, right? Uh, but yes, the small town carnival people, they kind of have earned the title of carny. I'm sorry, not taking it back. Yes. And there was an instance in our hometown where 
uh, a woman and her child were actually murdered by a carnival worker yeah. uh, who is in the Howard County Fair. So yeah. that's kind of where the big uh, fear of carnival workers in our hometown came from, too. Yeah, dude, that was like the wildest fucking thing, too. That was just so like he just killed them and then took their bodies to Kansas or something. It's just like yeah. so fucking weird. But anyway, yeah. So if you guys leave the show five star review on iTunes, one that we can actually read um, and they're funny and good. We'll read them on the show, but they have to be five stars. Uh, no more one stars there. Otherwise, uh, Phil, if they want to contact us, where can they do that? Well, they can hit us up on our email, subliminaldpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, it's great hearing from you guys. Uh, love the ideas for the shows. Keep them coming. Uh, probably the best way to get a hold of us, though, is on our Instagram, Subliminal Deception Podcast on IG. Uh, really love all of the likes and all of the, uh, you know, all of the messages you guys send. You know, keep them coming. Uh, really helps out, you know. Helps us, helps us keep going with the whole process of doing this podcast. Kind of a thankless job in the way. Cody and I both have our own Instagrams. Mine is sdpodphil. Cody, you got one? Yeah, you can follow my personal Instagram at Cody Zabub. Uh, hit me up on there. I post Mimi sometimes or whatever. But again, um, yeah, if you are, well, if you follow me and you look at the memes, you'll know if you'll be offended by them or not. So <laughs> they're not like actually offensive. They're just offensive to crazy conspiracy people. So uh, there's that. Otherwise, uh, Phil, excellent episode. Leave the show a five-star review. Have us read it. Uh, follow us on Spotify if you listen on Spotify. Otherwise, uh, like I said, Phil, excellent episode. Hopefully everyone, hopefully we, you didn't scare anybody. You know, uh, but it's just kind of the truth of the world at the moment. So otherwise, guys, we'll see you next week. Thanks, guys. 